Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Welcome to Get Me Pregnant, your no BS guide to assisted fertility. I am Rachel Corbett. I'm head of podcasts here at Mamma Mia, and I am a 38-year-old woman with a freezer full of little eggs. I'm Lee Campbell, Mamma Mia's executive editor, and I have been through the IVF process from start to finish, not once, not twice, but three times, so I know exactly what we're going to be talking about. You know all the ins and outs. This show is for you if you have been trying to get pregnant naturally and you're thinking, I might need a little bit of help. You might be a solo lady, just like me, who's thinking... I tell you, Mr. Wright has not come over the horizon. It might be time to do this by myself. Or you could be thinking about surrogacy, sperm or egg donation. We're going to cover all of it so you are informed and ready to make the right decisions. So coming up, we're going to discuss all the options before IVF because IVF is not the only way. Then we'll take a deep dive into the actual process of IVF step by step, not just the process, but also the emotional toll it takes. There's so much that is involved in IVF and you think so many women and men are going through it now and you just go in there and go, what the hell is through this door? And there's so many little avenues that you can go down. So what happened to your friend or another couple you know might not happen to you. So it's good to know every single way it can work. Yeah, especially since people really like to come in and give you their two cents. Oh, don't they? (laughs) We're also going to look at fertility preservation too. Maybe you're getting older and you think I better put the eggs on ice for a bit of an insurance policy. Or you might be diagnosed with cancer and you're going through chemo so you're putting those eggs on ice just to be safe. There are a lot of reasons why you could be going down any one of these paths and we want to make sure that you've got all the info you need. We've also got a segment that's all about busting myths. Totally. So we're going to do fact or fiction in every episode where we get the most common questions answered by an actual qualified expert, not by Google. (laughs) And not by your well-meaning friend who comes over and knocks on your door and thinks I know everything. Now, to kick off the show, we are going to be joined each week by a fantastic fertility specialist. She is going to be answering a lot of our questions and we're going to kick it off with how to get our bodies ready. Manuela Toledo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me here. And you know, there's no such thing as too many questions. How long have you been working as a, a fertility specialist? So I've been working in this area for probably more than 20 years now. And it's such a rapidly evolving and changing area, which is um, what keeps us on our toes. And now I feel like the fertility specialist is the modern day magician because you are giving the gift of baby life to many people who previously might not have been able to have a child. I have been called many terms over the years and magician is a new one. So I'm I'm going to have a think about that. But it's, it's very interesting. When I first started out, I was working with some of the IVF pioneers in the area of fertility medicine. And I just feel so incredibly fortunate to have had that experience. 
And some of the things that they discovered and the techniques they use, we've now brought forward into this modern era. And now there's this entire layer of technology on top of it which, of course, has improved the pregnancy rate incredibly. Mm. All right. Well, I just want to start about it with a general question because this episode is about improving the chances of getting pregnant. I know that we're told that we have to be healthy and that's the best um, idea when you're trying to have a baby. But is getting healthy about just creating a good baby environment or could it literally be the difference between having a baby and not having a baby? So to be healthy, we want you to not smoke. We want you to have minimal alcohol, a glass of wine with a meal, not a problem, but it shouldn't be your main fluid intake. We want you to be well hydrated, especially on a hot day. We want you to exercise 30 minutes, three times a week, ideally moderate exercise. We don't want you to over-exercise but we also don't want you to be a couch potato. What is over-exercising though? Because I'm an exerciser and I have been for a lot of years. Is it just maintaining what I usually do? Is over-exercising if you're usually sedentary and then all of a sudden you're like, I'm going to run a marathon. Is that Mm. over-exercising? Well, it's interesting. I have a lot of patients who think that going to the gym for three hours a day is normal. And I'm here to tell you when you're trying to be pregnant, that is not normal and that is bad for fertility. How come? Why is that bad? Because all your blood supply is going to your muscles. It's not going to your uterus and your little ovaries and it's impairing your cycle. So your cycles will become a little bit more irregular and a little bit less predictable if you're over-exercising. Wow. That, that's really interesting. What about weight as well? Because I think often we're told that it's you should lose weight. Being overweight is a problem, but being underweight is a problem as well, right? Absolutely. Every woman has a conception weight that's ideal for her. And you kind of don't know what your conception weight is until you've had a baby. And then often when you come in for your second and third, we say, try to get back to that conception weight that you had the first time around. So being overweight is not good. Being underweight is not good. It really mucks up your hormones. What about a guy's weight, though? Because I feel like in the fertility space, it's always on the woman. It feels as a woman like, gosh. It's so unfair, but that's just the way it is. But a guy's weight is incredibly important. Um, Obese men who smoke are just a disaster from a fertility point of view. Good. So it's not all on the woman. Definitely not. No, the man has to do his bit. And you touched on drinking before the one glass of wine. I have two questions there. Can I save up my glass of wine and have seven on the weekend? And the other drink that we all love, coffee, how does that affect fertility? So, Lee, I think you're alluding to binge drinking. Yes, the Australian Uh, pastime. Yes, okay. So another take-home message, binge drinking is definitely bad. So you're much better off having a glass or two with a meal two or three times a week while you're well hydrated. Please don't save yourself a Friday night. Coffee, one to two a day to wake you up and, and get your day going, not a problem. But again, it's not your main fluid intake. Okay. And so we touched on smoking, obviously bad, no, no. Talk to me about passive smoking. I have two parents who smoke a lot, a lot, a lot, and it was something I worried about through my journey. How bad is passive smoking? Passive smoking is probably almost as bad as smoking yourself. So passive smoking in a confined area like a car or a house is is really a no-no and it lingers on your curtains on your skin um, and that's why it's so bad around children as well and unfortunately SIDS or cot death is really way more common in couples where there's a smoker in the family. One of the things that I noticed in the reading was that STIs can have an impact on whether or not you can get pregnant. Is that true? 
STIs or sexually transmitted diseases are sort of the silent, silent epidemic in the Western world. So you can have chlamydia or gonorrhea and be blissfully unaware. The issue with those um, STIs is that it can block your tubes. And so even though your eggs might be great and your partner's sperm might be great and you're both not smoking and you're exercising three times a week, the egg and the sperm are just not going to meet because the tubes are blocked. Oh, wow. And what about steroids? That's a big no-no too, right? You steroids, Rach? <laughs> I'm asking for a friend. <laughs> well, uh, yes, we're always asking for a friend. Steroids are very, very dangerous category of medication. They have to be very carefully supervised and in low doses they can be very, very good for certain conditions like asthma, arthritis uh, and other immune conditions. But the anabolic steroids that people are taking to bulk up uh, when they're going to the gym are definitely bad for sperm production. What about you mentioned earlier about stress? Obviously, this can be a really stressful time for people, especially if they've got an idea of how they want things to roll out and it's not following that plan. How can stress impact your ability to have a baby? Because stress manifests in some wacky ways. And I think we don't really understand the effect of stress on fertility. I think that's the bottom line. And it's really hard to not be stressed. We're just leading such busy lifestyles and and even just the stress of, you know, jumping in a cab or, or jumping on a train and trying to get to work on time. I think what we all need to aim for is having stress free bubbles in our week, be that yoga, be that massage, be that acupuncture, whatever works for you. And if you can create a few stress free bubbles in your week, then you're you're a long way ahead. I really like that idea because sometimes I think the pressure that we put on ourselves to be stress-free <laughs> makes us so flippin' stressed. But if you think, you know what, I can bloody stress-free bubble for yeah. an hour in a week. You look at your diary, you put some bubbles in. That's doable. Just a few little bubbles just mm. scattered throughout the week. I Absolutely. Like Obviously, couples listening to this may be a little bit into the journey. They might be thinking, okay, right, this isn't working. I'm going to start tracking my cycles. There's some apps, but there's also the pee sticks at home. I was peeing on the pee sticks at home for several months and then found out that they were inaccurate. What are your thoughts on those things? The problem is you can't rely on it. So I see a lot of couples who rely on the urine sticks to detect the surge in ovulation. And if you wait around and stop having sex until your urine stick becomes positive, then you're probably going to miss it. Same with the apps. 50% of apps have been shown to be inaccurate in our latest research. So fine to use an app. And all my patients have apps. And, and we compare the app with our blood test results. And then we normally work out that they're a little bit inaccurate. Fine to have an app, fine to have the the urine sticks, but please don't rely on them. Don't stop having sex just because your app tells you it's too early or it's too late. I was so unaware of the idea of having to have the sperm go in. I mean, is that the medical term? (laughs) um, Ejaculation. Ejaculation before you actually have uh, an egg pop out. So if you're like, oh, okay, I'm ovulating, I've peed on the stick, it's happening, you probably need the sperm to be in there a couple of days or a day before that, right? So absolutely. Ideally, you want to start trying before you're fertile. So if you have a 28-day cycle and you're ovulating day 13 or 14, we would recommend you start trying around day 11 every second day Ooh, so, I was the, ask so the sperm has time to recover. And so also, can you have too much sex in that window? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Um, It becomes very stressful for couples when they're trying to have sex every day and the pregnancy rates are no better. In fact, the pregnancy rates probably are less because the sperm count just doesn't have time to recover. So we suggest every second day around your fertile time. 
And quite a number of couples find it easier when they're trying to be pregnant to actually have sex twice a week and then once on the weekend. And plus it's good for your relationship. You mentioned about the idea of tracking on apps and things not being super accurate. If you're doing it the blood test way, if I come in and have a blood test, do I have to be having a blood test every day and then you say, run, run, (laughs) go and have have sex? Or can you say in seven days or three days you should have sex? Can you sort of forward plan? So I'm a bit of a forward planner. I like to forward plan and I don't like to say to my patients, please run home and have sex. Um, <laughs> it really kills the mood. It, no <laughs> it does kill the mood and it's all a lot of pressure, especially for the male partners. It's not like the movies where they say I'm ovulating now, you have to come home right now. Um, we really like you to start trying before you ovulate so that you have that little bit of leeway and the pressure's off. Mm. And what about, can you just get a fertility specialist for that bit? Like, because I think sometimes people think, oh, I have to go to a fertility specialist. It's the whole thing. But could I just come to you just to do my blood tests and tell me when I should have sex? Yeah, look, that's a great question. Absolutely. I mean, I work for a large um, IVF unit in Australia and we do a lot of things other than IVF. We do a lot of cycle tracking. So what we're talking about now is you come in and you might have an ultrasound with me and then I might say, it looks like you're ovulating in three days. Shall we do a blood test just to confirm that for you? Then you might compare that to your app or your urine sticks. And it might be that that's all working for you and you don't, you can just do it yourself for the next few months. Oh, wow. What about if you, because I have polycystic ovaries, but I'm the 28 days, I'm 31 days, I'm over here, I'm over there. What if you're somebody who doesn't have a regular cycle? So you're just like, I don't know what day 11 is. I know, I know. And that's where we come back to rather than looking at the calendar, trying twice a week and once on the weekend is probably the way to go for you. Polycystic ovary is very, very common and there's a big distinction between polycystic appearing ovaries. That means you have an ultrasound and someone says, hey, you've got a lot of eggs and you've got polycystic appearing ovaries versus polycystic ovarian syndrome, which is a whole different ballgame. I've got the first one because I thought when the doctor said you've got polycystic ovaries, I immediately said, oh, my goodness, I can't have kids. Mm. But then, I thought it was PCOS. Yes, and, but then it actually turned out that I had more eggs and fingers crossed they're good quality, but it's surprising how little we know. Absolutely, and it's a very scary term, polycystic ovaries. It sounds like something is really, really wrong. But actually, Rach, you are very lucky because you have more eggs than the average woman. Yes. So um, us fertility specialists really like patients with polycystic ovarian syndrome and polycystic ovaries. It's completely manageable, um, but it does need to be supervised by a doctor who understands the area. And I want to talk about complementary treatments because a lot of people going down this route that want to have a baby might be doing acupuncture, might be looking into Chinese medicine. What are your thoughts on those? A lot of my patients do see allied health professionals and have complementary therapies. Acupuncture is very popular. Acupuncture has been shown to increase the blood supply to the uterus and the ovaries, and and that's a, a good thing. It's also shown to induce incredible relaxation in some patients, and so their cortisol levels and their stress levels are dropping, and that's a really good thing when you're trying to be pregnant and when you're doing fertility treatments such as IVF. So a lot of couples do use acupuncture to manage the stress associated with fertility treatments. That's good news because I love acupuncture. Oh, I hated it. Did a couple oh, of times. And really? I just, yeah, I just played on my phone the entire time because I was so bored. As a fertility specialist, I really encourage my patients to tell me what else they're doing. 
doing. We're in a very uh, lucky situation in the in the town, the city that I live in, where we have a very collaborative approach to fertility treatment. And I have a lot of naturopaths and acupuncturists and allied health professionals who work with me, mm-hmm. with the patient. And we're all on the same page. We're all emailing each other and talking to each other. And That's it's really awesome. all about the patient mm. and the patient's journey and the patient getting there, getting pregnant. That's so nice. I had a woo-woo person that wanted to steam my vagina. And when I told my fertility expert, she said, please don't do that. <laughs> and and I, I, haven't, I, I haven't heard about that. So I'll, uh, offline, I might ask you about that later <laughs> on. But sometimes you can feel a bit embarrassed, like if it's really basic stuff, you know, like, do you want to know even, oh, I'm taking iron tablets and I'm taking, you know, because sometimes I'm like, oh, is that the stuff that you just, that I shouldn't tell not shouldn't tell, but like, do you need to know that? If I'm putting a bit of peppermint oil in the bloody diffuser at home, do I have to tell you that? You know, your fertility specialist wants to know everything. Um, we, we do want to know that you're taking a multivitamin with folic acid and iron. That's really important. Folic acid, very important for baby's brain development. So ideally you want to be on it three months before you actually conceive. And we definitely want to know that you're eating most food groups and you're well hydrated and not too much alcohol and no smoking and no party drugs. And I think it's important to just point out that a lot of people are doing party drugs. Um, They're doing them on the weekend. They're doing them over the summer period when they're on vacation. And they don't really see themselves as a drug user, Mm. but in actual fact they are. So I've sort of learnt to ask ask my patients whether they're using party drugs. And please don't. Are people honest with you, do you think? Look, most of them are. When you ask the question, I mean, they're there to get pregnant. And often we just have to tweak a few lifestyle things. Okay. Mm. We'll get into proper fertility tests later, but are there some general sort of GP tests you could get started with first before you go into the proper fertility tests? Absolutely. A lot of people find it very confronting to go and see a fertility specialist. And so if you feel more comfortable going to your interested family doctor who has an interest in women's health and can do rubella and chickenpox testing for you, make sure your iron levels are good, do your hepatitis and HIV screening or syphilis screening, all those basic things that are known as antenatal testing. Very, very happy with that. And then again, I have some couples coming in and they've had absolutely nothing done and we start from scratch and I'm very happy with that as well. Well, we've got so much more to get to. I feel like we've really like... But only just scratched the surface. I know, but I feel so knowledgeable. It's amazing. We're going to talk a little bit about how you know when you need help because, of course, there are a lot of couples that are trying and thinking, oh, am I having trouble or is this just how long it takes? And we asked you to share your stories about how your assisted fertility journey began. I kind of knew that I would have an issue um, because I was diagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was 18 and I always had super regular periods. So my doctor kind of told me that don't wait till you're 35 to start trying. So I kind of went into, you know, my 20s knowing that I shouldn't put off my family. I went off the pill probably about two years ago now. I wasn't really tracking anything. Um, and it was probably about a year after that. I was like, time to get a little bit serious about this. So I started using the period out flow and also doing those ovulation test kits. And the whole act became a bit of a chore, um, particularly for my partner who likes everything to be spontaneous. And I was like, no, no, we've got to go do it now. When we decided that we wanted to have a family, my father actually has a, a disease called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic disease that causes um, males to go blind. So before fertility apps, before having a bit of fun in the sheets, I actually went straight to business and made an appointment with a genetic counsellor. My periods were super irregular. So actually 
all that stuff you read on the internet about, you know, oh, 14 days after your period, have sex and that's your most fertile days. Like that doesn't really apply when your cycles are 72 days. So I just never knew when. So we ended up trying all the time and that's exhausting. And it's really hard when you keep getting bad news to try and have sex and have fun because you're just thinking, am I doing it the right way? Am I doing the right angle? If I do it this way, will this help? Like it's just, it, it, it just, everything becomes something you overthink, even sex with your husband. We tried about a year and a half before we thought something was not quite right. I didn't think there was anything wrong with me to start falling pregnant because at that time I was age 35. I didn't think that I was um, at a risk of being infertile, basically. Because everyone says, oh, you're young, you're in your 20s, you know, just have sex and, you know, it'll happen, but not, not always the case. Getting pregnant naturally doesn't follow any specific timeline. So it's hard for a lot of couples to know what is just baby taking time and what is I need help with baby. Manuela, what is the point at which a couple should say, okay, I think we've been trying for long enough that we need to see an expert? And I think this is really important, Rachel. If you're under 35 and you're both healthy, non-smokers, there I am going back to the smoking again, then you should give yourself 12 months. Having said that, if at the eight-month mark, your relationship is falling apart because it's all just way too stressful, please come in and see us. If you're over 35, we give you six months because over 35, time is not on our side. And if you're not pregnant, you need to come in and have a chat. If you have any other issues going on, like irregular periods, significant gynecological health issues like endometriosis or PCOS, then obviously come and see us earlier. What are some other questions you should ask yourself as a woman or perhaps as the couple to go, okay, now maybe we go see someone? If you've had miscarriages, that's a really important thing because miscarriages are devastating from a psychological point of view, but they could also be indicative of some underlying abnormality, maybe with your immune system, maybe some genetic abnormalities. So that's a good time to come in and see us if you've had more than two miscarriages. I see some women after one miscarriage, they're so devastated, they, they just want to come in and get checked out. And I encourage that. There's nothing wrong with that. But miscarriages are also sort of part of the natural course of things, right? So just because you've had a miscarriage doesn't mean that there's necessarily something wrong or that you couldn't have a baby naturally, right? Absolutely. Miscarriages are very common. So at 35, your chance of a miscarriage once you are pregnant is 10 to 15%. Mm. So yes, it's very common. And often when women come in and they've had one or two miscarriages, I'll say to them, well, what did your mum do? How old was your mum when she had babies? And how old was she when she had her last baby? And how many miscarriages did she have? And then often people will say, oh yeah, actually, my mum did have a miscarriage between each baby. So it's considered normal. And I say that very carefully because it can be absolutely devastating for women and couples to have a miscarriage, but it is considered normal from a biological point of view. I also think one of the troubles with that is that three-month window that we put over communication because, you know, a friend of mine had six miscarriages and told nobody, then had a pregnancy and everybody's like, oh my gosh, it happened so easily for you. And I was one of the few people she told. And I thought, my goodness, I get why we, you know, there's a lot that can go wrong in that space. But if you don't tell anybody and we only see the success story, then a lot of women think when it happens to me, I'm the only one. Six miscarriages is a lot and I really wish your friend had gone to see an interested GP or a fertility specialist after the second or third miscarriage because maybe, maybe we could have prevented 
those other three miscarriages that she had subsequently. Um, it's very personal though, isn't it? When you have a miscarriage, um, you, you're so devastated. You don't want to talk about it with anyone really. So I can understand why maybe she kept it to herself. We've talked about lifestyle changes we can make. We've talked about women's age. What are some other factors that might affect the female's fertility? For example, Rach thought she had PCOS, but she actually had polycystic ovaries. I found out I had endo. So what are some other things that could be a barrier? There could be multiple things and you might be blissfully unaware that you have fibroids or that you have blocked tubes because you haven't had an STI that you picked up when you were 18 and and no one has actually ever tested you for You may also have painful periods, which indicates that you could have endometriosis. What is endometriosis and what is polycystic ovarian syndrome and other things like that that could be getting in the way? Endometriosis is a condition where the endometrium, which is the lining of the uterus, is actually found outside of the uterus, anywhere in the pelvic cavity. And one of the concerns is that it alters the hormones within the pelvis and it alters the environment and it makes the environment less conducive to pregnancy and implantation. The issue is, though, endometriosis is very common. And does mild endometriosis cause infertility? That is the big eternal question. The answer is probably not. If you have mild endometriosis and you have been infertile for a long time, might it help if we remove it for you? Yes, it might. How is it diagnosed? Because it's so, so many people have it, yet they don't know. It's because you can't find it on a blood test. Is that why? A lot of women are completely asymptomatic and we might pick it up during a diagnostic laparoscopy, which is a, a, a small surgical procedure where we're looking around inside the pelvis. Some women come in and say, I have really painful periods, I think I've got endometriosis. And then you kind of start looking forward. It can be picked up on a really high quality vaginal ultrasound. And that can be done with no sedation, walk-in, walk-out procedure. It's so hard with these things that have such a range of symptoms for different women because, you know, you assume, like I did with polycystic ovaries, I can't have polycystic ovaries because my friend has PCOS and it looks that way. And you don't understand that things can present in very different Mm. ways for different people. So you think, well, if I can get out of bed and I'm not in a lot of pain, I must not have endometriosis because that's what it, how it presents in some people. And some women with very minor endometriosis have terrible pelvic pain and some women with very high-grade endometriosis um, are completely asymptomatic. The good news is that if you're pregnant that will modify your endometriosis and almost treat it. The bad news is that if you have significant endometriosis, it's harder to get pregnant. So it's kind of a catch-22. My experience has been that many women are very in tune with their bodies. And then when they come in and they say, I think there's something wrong, they're usually right. Um, So even if you've only been trying for three months and you come along because you just have this feeling something is not right, we're very happy to investigate you. And it may be at the end of it all that will just reassure you and say, look, go away, try another six months and then come back if you're still not pregnant. And you mentioned about STIs um, and there could be some that you don't even know that you have. What are the ones that you really need to be mindful of? So we really want to make sure that you don't have chlamydia or gonorrhea and we really want to make sure that you don't have a significant HPV or human papillomavirus. So if you're wanting to be pregnant, you should have an up-to-date cervical screening test, which was previously known as a pap smear. But now we have this really cool test, CST, and once you've had it and it was all negative, meaning we found no abnormalities, you don't need to do it again for five years, which is fantastic. So having a CST will pick up whether you've got human papillomavirus, and we're really interested in the high-risk ones 
HPV 16 and 18. And if you do have those, we'll go looking further doing a fancy test called a colposcopy, which is actually fairly simple. We can do chlamydia and gonorrhea testing now on urine. It's called urine PCR testing. And so you just wee in a little sample jar and we send that off to the lab and then we uh, get the results back and let you know. And as I said previously, chlamydia is very notorious to cause a blocked tube. So we really want to make sure that you um, are not exposed. Are these all things that you would standardly test for before you started the process with a fertility specialist? So a lot of people would come in from their GP and would have had these tests done. If they haven't, then we will test for it. If you'd had them in the past and had them treated, can they still cause or get in the way of fertility or should it be, okay, it's treated, it's done, I'm all good? If you've had it in the past and it's been treated quickly, that's great. Probably you don't have any tubal problems. If there was a delay in treatment or it was a bit of a nasty extended infection, then you might have blocked tubes and that's something we can assess with ultrasound as well. What about the HPV? Because I went and had a pap smear, had the HPV, then went and had a colposcopy and that was fine. If I've got it but the that colposcopy says it's not like bad. Is that okay? That's absolutely fine. HPV is really common. It's, it's like everywhere. And most people who've ever been sexually active have been exposed to it. We're really just interested in the high risk types, the 16 and 18, which can increase your risk of cervical cancer. And I'd just like to emphasize that most women with HPV 16 and 18 do not get cancer, but we do want them to have a colposcopy, just like you mentioned, Rach, and just be under surveillance. And now I want to talk about the guys because so much of the focus is on the woman's body, but obviously it takes sperm to make a baby. How much does the man contribute to having a baby? The man's health and the man's sperm is incredibly important. It is a really vital ingredient. And yes, we go on and on about the woman and and the female age because eggs age much more rapidly than sperm. That's just a biological fact. Having said that, sperm ages well, even though more more slowly than eggs. Um, And so we want the sperm to be at its best when trying to have a baby. And luckily for men, we can just do a sperm test. And I say just because women can have so many invasive investigations. For men, it is a little bit more straightforward. If we do a sperm test and we see that the sperm count is good and this motility is good and they're swimming in the right direction and the sperm morphology, which is the shape of the sperm, is good, then really we're ticking a lot of boxes from a hormonal and biochemical point of view. And then we can move on and investigate the female more thoroughly. But obviously, we talked about those lifestyle changes earlier. They apply to males too, right? Trying to have a baby, they should stop smoking, watch what they drink. Absolutely. And a lot of men do binge drink. You know, they think they're being really good and they all month they don't do anything. And then at the end of the month, when all the figures are in at work and they go to the pub and then they have their binge drinking session of eight or more alcoholic drinks in a row, and that is so bad for the sperm. So again, the same message for men, good hydration and distribute your alcohol throughout the week and absolutely no smoking and that 30 minutes of exercise three times a week. If you test a man's sperm, is it possible that if you did another test like a week later, they'd come good or do men's sperm deteriorate and deteriorate and deteriorate or can they have good and bad days? Men have good and bad days. So the sperm can be up and down um, and there's some really interesting studies where men perform semen analysis um, over a year, every second or third day. I think there were actually some prisoners who took part in this study and we saw an incredible variation 
and the sperm count and the motility from day to day. So we would never base all our assessment and treatment on one single sperm sample. But we do want someone to be really well hydrated when they produce their first sample and ideally have abstained for two to five days prior to the sample, but not longer. If you don't ejaculate for more than seven days, then your sperm slows down and it stops swimming. Is that true? Very scary stuff. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why coming back to when you're trying to be pregnant, ideally a couple would be trying twice during the week and once on the weekend to keep the sperm nice and fresh and motile. Wow. And I think it's important to know male infertility is like the second highest after a woman's age that can be the issue for why you can't get pregnant, right? 50% of the IVF cases that we see have a male factor component. Mm. So 50%, that's, that's half. Yeah, it takes two to tango. Look, it does take two to tango, but sometimes it actually takes three to make a baby, especially in the situations where we're looking at donor gametes, such as donor sperm or donor eggs. And I think we'll talk about that Mm. a little bit later on. Yeah, we need to come up with a better phrase than it takes two to tango Mm. because we're so modern now. Like you could have same-sex relationships and then you've got a surrogate and then you've got donor eggs and maybe a donor sperm over there. Could take eight to tango. (laughs) Absolutely. And you can tango by yourself as well. Yes. yes. There you go. Good advice. It's time for Fact or Fiction. We're going to do this at the end of every episode because there are so many myths floating around and you'll have everybody who thinks they're a bloody expert with no degree in anything coming up and saying, well, I know a few things about fertility, let me tell you. So we want to just bust the myths and make sure that you have only the proper information. Manuela, first things first, the pill and infertility. Can being on the pill cause infertility? The short answer is the take-home message, no. The pill is actually incredibly helpful because when you're on the pill, you won't get pregnant, which means you can choose your, your timing of fertility. It also reduces the incidence of ovarian cysts. It reduces the incidence of endometrial cancers. It lets you regulate your periods when you want to have them or not have them. Being on the pill is actually really good um, when you're between babies or just not ready for a baby yet. How far in advance do you need to go off the pill if you want to have a baby? The pill wears off really, really quickly. I mean, we blame the pill for all kinds of things, but after one to two months, the pill effect is absolutely gone and you will get symptoms back of normal ovulation and a lot of women find that really distressing. Uh, You will get period pain. That's quite normal off the pill. Um, And if you do have endometriosis, you will get some symptoms related to that because the pill is very good at suppressing and managing endometriosis. So I think the studies, one in six women in Australia in their 30s have had a past abortion. And so I'm sure there's women listening who want to know if a past abortion does affect future fertility. So when a patient comes in and and tells me that they've had an abortion or a termination of pregnancy, that actually really helps me because it tells me that she's got proven past fertility. And that's an important fact to know because someone who's been pregnant before is much more likely to be pregnant again in the future. So that's actually a really positive thing. An abortion performed in a proper medical centre under hygienic conditions is considered very safe and does not cause future infertility. We do encourage women not to have recurrent terminations of pregnancy. It's a bit like having recurrent curatages of the uterus. It does slightly increase the risk of scarring within the uterus. So if you've had one, two, maybe three terminations of pregnancy, please come and see someone and talk about reliable contraception until you're ready 
to be pregnant. Good example of stuff that, you know, people are still very um, scared to talk about that kind of stuff. But actually, when you're sitting across from a professional, that stuff is so important for you to know and could really help or hinder or, you know, just help to find the right pathway for people. Because I think sometimes people are just scared to talk about that stuff, you know? Absolutely. And and I think it's, um, people are becoming more open though. I, I found a lot of patients talk about it quite freely, uh, even in front of their uh, new partners. Um, and it's just a, a fact of life that contraception doesn't always work. Last question. Can I use the temperature of my body to track ovulation? <laughs> where, where has this come from? No that's, no, that's a, no, that's a good question. No, and I understand completely what you're asking. If you wait for your temperature to rise, it means that you have already ovulated. So this comes back to what we were discussing earlier, where it's much better to start when your temperature is low before you have ovulated, rather than waiting for that app or waiting for the temperature rise. What kind of temperatures are we talking anyway? Is someone expecting like a whole degree or like point We're one? talking subtle, like subtle, subtle, subtle. And I can tell you right now that while I don't mind my patients tracking their temperature, I do not rely on it, just like I don't rely on the fertility apps. Once your temperature's gone up 0.3 degrees, yes, you've ovulated and the egg has well and truly gone and we have missed the boat for this cycle. Why does your temperature go up? So it's the progesterone level going up after ovulation and it gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling and then your temperature rises as well. So it's, it's, it's a true biological fact and we can measure it. But by the time it's happened, it's more sort of a retrospective looking back saying, yes, I ovulated two days ago. Are people testing this with a thermometer or am I just thinking that people are so in tune with their down bodies, they're like, I've gone up 0.3 degrees. No, they're testing. <laughs> no, you definitely, you definitely have to test, but it's very frustrating. And most of my patients who start testing with the thermometer don't do it for very many cycles. They're over it pretty quickly. Mm. Thanks so much, Manuela. Well, I feel like the real takeaway from today's episode was do not smoke. I'm going home to throw away my Winnie Blues. <laughs> Only joking, I don't smoke if my mum and dad are listening. Bless, I hope you tuck them up in your little shirt sleeve. Of course I do. (laughs) I also like the idea, I didn't realise that you could use a fertility specialist just for the bit of tracking your ovulation and I really want, if I ever did that for my fertility specialist, to do the blood test and just go, run, (laughs) run home now. And your partner's just waiting there (laughs) with the pressure. Exactly. Next week we're going to look at what you do when you do actually know that you need help. So it's not lo- no longer that you're unsure about whether you're in that window of time where things aren't working or whether you just need to wait. You know that you need to go and find an expert. We're also going to look at the options that you have before IVF and I'm super excited about this. Do you know why? Why? Because I want to ask about turkey basting because <laughs> that is what I'm living for. <laughs> and in the meantime, have fun having sex twice during the week and once on the weekend. Yes, absolutely. Sound advice. This show was produced by Cecilia Ramsdale and Bridget Northeast. If you want to share your stories of your fertility journey, then please send us an email at podcast at mamamia.com.au and we will see you next week. 